0: Now broadcasting from the next-gen conservative studio in sunny South Florida, bringing you the latest in politics, current events, and pop culture. This is the Whitfield Report with Sam Whitfield.
1: All righty, everyone, and welcome to Monday's edition of the Whitfield Report. I'm your host Sam Whitfield and joining us is uh our first guest of the year officially uh came highly recommended to me by uh, a couple friends in the uh off community uh Mr. Steve Stratton who I would dare say might be the most badass uh guest that I've had on the show just based off of uh his resume um, Steve from what I've seen he was a he started as a green beret uh and then went into the secret service and did a few other things and now he's uh becoming a thriller author so a uh, pretty extensive resume uh so Steve welcome to the show and glad to have you here uh, you don't look you don't look seventy at all. You look uh you look more like I would say fifty or so. So, but uh yeah. So uh, I don't really even know where to start. Um, how did you uh? I mean, let's just start from the beginning. How did you uh? You know, what made you decide to enlist, first of all? And thank you for your services as as well. And, uh, you know, just uh, what's your background?
2: So... Mhm-hmm Uh-huh Yeah.
1: Oh, wow. So you, you go back to the Nixon White House then.
0: My sponsor, as we were driving into D.C., my, my funny story is that he said, do you know what that is? And I said, is that the Watergate? And he said, yeah, don't go there.
1: <laughs> yeah. So
0: it, uh, it was a very, you know, uh it, not temptuous, but a good word. It was a very crazy time in D.C.
3: Sure, sure. The
0: board took over and was trying to promote stability and get the country moving forward again. And uh, so I went with, like, you know, right away I'm going with uh, on the advanced trips out to Vail, Colorado, learning how to see because I've got to follow the president around with a radio on my back. Is like the backup to the backup kind of idea, you know. And uh, I'm just hoping I don't run over him because I, I literally learned how to ski one day and then started following the president. So it was pretty great
1: yeah how how does that work like I've always been curious too, like in the secret service uh like does the president like i I know that you guys have to follow the president around uh pretty closely, but like how much privacy does he actually get if if any because I can imagine that the the folks uh on Clinton's details saw some pretty uh interesting things to say the least um,
0: well well in and around the white house um, they're not in the living quarters you know you're not in the living quarters unless you have to be mm-hmm. um, right and, and you're not inside the oval office as talks are going on right you've got uniform divisions service officers right they, they dress more like uh, dc police um, and they're stationed around the white house and then the agents of course are right outside the protective detail leader and, and the team in case the president decides he wants to move, make a movement, go somewhere. But if he's, you know, walking back and forth in the White House, uh, he's got some freedom. When he was, uh, President Ford was seeing, he was doing blue runs, thank goodness, and, and the senior service team was out away from him such that the photographers could take pictures and it looked like the president was on the mountain. He wasn't crowded, you know, yeah. by a team. Uh, of course, when he steps out of the limo, shake hands, then they're in tight, right? Yeah. I'm looking for the threat. So, uh, my job uh, was as a technical security specialist. After I did the communications for four and a half years, I switched over to the Secret Service, and my job was to go out in advance again and make sure there weren't any bombs in the elevators, make sure the rooms were sweet, he was staying overnight, and just essentially doing technical protection of the space so that the agents and the protective detail come in and feel that the space was secure. Right. We've right. Mom dogs, bomb teams, things like that.
1: How but, long I've always wondered, like, how long does, does it take for the advanced team to, you know, like, I guess, I don't know if the, if this is the word, but I guess sweep an area. Um, do I, you just well, have to show up like an hour size, or so? You know,
0: yeah, well, it depends on its size. Um, You know, when the Pope came, uh, when the Polish Pope came to uh, D.C., he's doing a big, long motorcade, right? And back in those days, we didn't have those concrete barriers. So we actually were taking all day long to fill barrels with water, inspect them, tape them up with tamper tape, you know, to create a barricade for the the motorcade route. Uh, So those kind of things, making sure that the man covers are welded down, different things like that. Those can take days, and yeah, usually in advance, in ad, a presidential advance or a big advance, like like a pope coming to the U.S., things like that, you're spending a couple weeks getting things done, two to three weeks in advance doing that,
1: Yeah, that's uh, that's all pretty uh, fascinating. Yeah, my uh, my grandmother, she was a uh, school secretary back in the 80s, and uh. Reagan actually visited her, her, uh, the school where she was like an administrative assistant, and she said, uh, you know, the secret service advance detail was one of the most impressive things that she had seen, how they were scouring, uh, you know, every inch, and, uh, you know, that was shortly after the assassination attempt on Reagan, too, so they were being uh, very thorough in regards to that whole deal
0: yeah it's interesting um so uh when board would go to Vail, the lead agent that would ski with him larry Boondorf, he was he actually became like the security chief for the olympic committee the winter olympic committee in the u.s and things like that but it's such a good skier, he could ski backwards 10 times better than i can see forward yeah he was actually the one in sacramento that grabbed the pistol from uh squeaky uh, and, and uh made sure that the pistol didn't go off at forty five she so uh, he was a real quality guy very dedicated and uh, uh, wow.
1: so you were in so you went the secret service during the the ford administration and and then did you stay in or what was your uh you know career path after
0: yeah, Mars? so a couple of years in the secret service and a campaign year where I was traveling about 300 plus days a year. (coughs) Excuse me. uh, uh, I decided to take a break and go skydiving down in Florida. And I liked it so much, I sent in my uh, resignation and went looking for a job after a couple of months, looking for a job down in Florida and uh, found one with the Department of Energy doing security uh, down there in Florida. So I spent a couple of years there. It was very informative. Got to, you know, between the four and a half years with being an Army communicator, and a technical security specialist, six and a half years, you know, I had at least a couple hundred days a year, every year that I was on the road, going somewhere, doing something, and uh, a lot of overseas travel, and it was time to take a break. And uh, so that's that's when I got out of the, the, the government system, went to work as a contractor, and while I was doing that, I decided to uh, join the National Guard, and I went via the Florida National Guard, I went through the special forces selection process with the Guard. So uh, in, in the National Guard, there is the 19th and the 20th special forces that are, are Utah, Colorado, California, sort of the western states is. The nineteenth and the twentieth is is on the east coast, essentially. So uh, I was able to get my uh, select and get my green beret, uh, get my long cap as they call it, um, via the National Guard.
1: Wow! So uh and and what was uh what was that like being a, a green beret?
0: Oh, tons of fun! Uh, of course, you've got uh, in the state of Maryland where I was at the time. Um, our uh, adjutant general for the Army side of the National Guard is was former special forces, so we had a we had a budget <laughs> like nobody else in the Maryland National Guard. He let us use his airplane, his helicopter, his Blackhawk. I had a free fall team, and uh, yeah, we had a a lot of great training and uh, a lot of fun uh, building the team and getting it ready for. Uh game the gy layers.
1: Yeah. So uh and correct me if I'm if I'm wrong, but the the Green Berets, they do more like uh I mean I know that the SEALs are mainly like a, a you know, a water-based uh you know, special forces team, but the Green Berets, if I'm not mistaken, they do more like uh urban like terrain type uh missions.
0: Well, the, the number one uh, focus of Special forces is to train partner nations. So ah. uh, we really, uh, we have on a Special forces what's called an Operational Detachment A. We have a, an officer, a, a senior lieutenant or a captain, a warrant officer, a master sergeant, and then we have um, one sergeant that is on intel, and then we have Two weapons sergeants, two communications sergeants, two demolition sergeants, and we certainly can go off and do missions, uh, raids, rescue hostages, you know, counterterrorism. But uh, uh, what I did pre-GY, because I retired in two thousand, um, was uh, go on training missions, like go down to Columbia and go to their Ranger School and do training, uh, or uh, uh, mobile units and things like that were that were entering the counter drug fight in Colombia. So
1: Yeah. Well I was I was reading a bit on your website and uh, I suppose this would be a good way to kind of transition. Um at what point did you decide that you wanted to become a, a writer? Because uh I, I noticed that um just based off of the blurbs I've read, your books, uh the Shadow Tears series tend to focus a lot on the drug war. Um, So I'm curious, did your experiences um, mold your decision to write about that fictionally? Or I guess what was your path towards becoming a writer then?
0: Yeah, so um, the inciting event for the first book took place in 1993. My parents were on vacation down in Puerto Penasco at the top of Baja. And uh they were co- go heading back to um uh, Southern California when uh, drug runners crashed into the truck and killed my mother. And
3: uh Oh.
0: Yeah, they threw of course the federalities just threw my dad in jail. Uh I think one of the drug runners lived through him in jail and then figured they sort it out later. But my mom died in a in a Mexican hospital and so From 93 to 2000, I had done all kinds of things. I'd done storyboards like you see in in, uh, Hollywood, you know, when they're prepping a movie, PowerPoints, all kinds of things. But right. Yeah. My writing uh, in my contracting career had been proposals to the government, uh, technical documents, things like that. I'd never written anything, uh, you know, that would be considered literary or a thriller, that kind of thing. And finally, 2019, my wife said, "Why don't you just write the story?" Because I wanted to use the writing of the story to help me with recovering from the event.
3: Sure. And, uh, yeah.
0: So um, I started writing, and um, it was just the hest of my wife. It's like, "Come on, just, just get it, get, get the story out." And then, uh, uh, as we talked, I live outside uh, in a suburb of Denver here. I found uh, Jerry Jenkins, who had done 23 times best-seller author, who had uh, written the Left Behind series, Christian series, and I found him and uh, did a mentorship with him. Uh, he's, he's down in like Colorado Springs there, Uh uh-huh. like an hour away, right? So uh, that, that started me on my journey. It's it, just like anything, when I um, decide I'm interested in something, whether it's Parachutes, motorcycles, guns, whatever it might be, fishing—I go all in. I'm, sort of, yeah, you know, <laughs> a little bit, a little bit nuts like that. I'm reading everything, looking at everything, deciding what I want to do and stuff. And that, yeah, that's how I started. And uh, you know, one of the first things I heard was Jeff Wilson said, uh, of Andrews and Wilson said, you need to not only do you need to hone your craft, you need to get in a community, become part of the community. And being in the military um, and other, you know, like like the Secret Service, you have a tribe, right? You have your people and, uh, you know, create a community. And so that's one of the things I went looking for was community. And, you know, that's how I came across, of course, Jeff. I connected with Jeff and Brian and then got to meet all these other great people, uh, even like through virtual thriller and things like that. Uh, during covid and so once i got into it it became uh, I'll, I'll honestly say it became a bit of an obsession to to just further myself become better learn more you know soak it up kind
1: of yeah way. no it's funny that you mentioned uh andrews and wilson because uh i just like about a month ago started listening to uh the audiobook version of of the uh of the uh tier one series that they did which I, I guess, you know, they they've since they've finished that series and gone on uh since then. But uh I you know I I I tagged them on Twitter or I guess it's called X now, whatever they're calling it. And uh you know I mentioned I finished the first book and liked it and uh I think, you know, one of them uh followed me back and I'm like, wow um you know, so they're really great guys and uh yeah, I mean I think I, I met Eric uh probably like six or seven years ago, Eric Bishop through uh one of the thriller uh communities in Facebook uh for uh Jack Carr. That's how we first met. And uh I had been kind of writing a few short story manuscripts of my own and uh he and a few other people pushed me to actually flesh out and write it. And so that's what I did. I published the first uh book back in July. So pretty interesting how Facebook and kinda of the internet has allowed us all to connect.
0: Oh absolutely. Yeah uh, Jack Jack responded to my questions a couple of times. Yeah, he said uh Jeff and Brian are just real people, you know, they just have to be real good authors.
3: But yeah,
0: they're, you know, all about helping folks and uh that's what I like about this community. There's no, um, nobody's worried, you know, that uh, I'm going to sneak up and take, you know, some percentage of their business. No. So many people read so many books, right? And, uh, uh, that's a great thing about, uh, about writing. Is yeah. I have to, uh, live out these stories in my head, great character, scene, and uh, share them, and, and uh, get, get feedback on
1: it. Yeah, it's it's uh it's definitely been kind it's it's kind of a new avenue for me because I've been doing podcasting for at this point several years. I'm turning 29 on Wednesday, but I started podcasting when I was like 14 and I've always been into politics, but uh I have to admit since the 2020 election I kind of got burned out on just doing politics all the time because it is a shit show um especially with the current uh administration at the helm um so you know I I like I said I'd I'd been writing for a bit and uh, I was like well why don't I focus a little more on that I've kind of I wouldn't say I've mastered podcasting because because you never truly master Something, but um, I wanted something new, so I decided to kind of dive back into writing, which I hadn't done in a while, and uh, yeah, it's been a, a pretty interesting journey for the last year and a half. So, yeah,
0: that's awesome. Yeah, the, the uh, I was lucky enough to get a traditional deal with a publisher, very small press, of course. But, uh, yeah, as we mentioned, same one as Eric and a couple other folks, and um. Uh, Got in advance, all kinds of good stuff like that. And a uh, uh, funny, um, Shadow Tear, my first book, uh, gave him the manuscript. And, and uh, the publisher was very honest and said, Hey, it's going to be quite a while before I can get it published. I'm back up. I said, No problem, I'll keep writing. And uh, just not too long ago, I went back and looked at one of those manuscripts and went, went through it again. I guess the, the delta between uh, 2019 and now, you know. Of, uh, just what I've learned and, and what I should yeah. be doing when I'm writing is uh, pretty amazing. And uh, so now that my publisher's gone out of uh, business, as we uh, talked before we uh, went live, the, uh, I am uh, looking at Vellum. I'm looking at how to, number one, take my first two books, which I have the rights for, uh, certainly go through the first one, do an edit, clean it up. And then uh, put it back out, much like Eric just has, like, is the ebook,
3: his yeah,
0: man, that kind of thing. So I'm, I'm a couple months behind Eric, but getting my ISBN, you know, all the different things. That they
1: yeah, that's always fun. Yeah, and on on the day we're recording this, uh, Eric just released the, uh, or I guess re-released the uh, the Body Man, his first book, which is funny because, uh. When he came on the show two years ago, uh, for the first time, he had just signed with his, uh, old publisher and we were, we had been talking about how, uh, you know, he, he really loved his new publisher and how they were great. And then, uh, last time I talked to him was when he was, uh, you know, self-publishing ransom daughter, which I have, uh, right here on my desk. And, uh, he said that they had gone out of business and he was, uh, self-publishing. So pretty interesting. How yeah, that, I, I'm, uh,
0: in a, I'm in between. I'm playing around with all the self-publishing stuff. I've been talking to a few people that were, showed some level of interest about taking over the Shadow Tier series. Um, I've, uh, Since my second book came out in August, Shadow Sanction, uh, I've completed an origin story novella for my protagonist, Lance Bearwood, and that's with an editor. I've completed a third book in the series, and then uh, I have a fourth book that is also done that I'll put through one more edit. So there's a possibility, if I was to self-publish, there's a possibility of a novella and foreshadowed to your books uh, coming out this year. so Yeah. Uh, wow. Yeah, I think that'll keep me busy.
1: Yeah, I... Uh, I... So all my books are actually Novels. I've only published the first one uh, here, Shadows of uh, Deception. Oh, nice. and, uh, there you go. And then um, I'm writing the second one now. I, I have, like, outlines for at least, like, uh, five or six more books. I, I wrote the outlines when I was in, in college, but um, as a writing major, I, ironically in college, I never really had time to write for myself. I was writing uh, all these academic papers. Um, yeah. So, you know, I graduated two years ago and finally got back to, you know, writing for myself and published my first novella back in July and I'm working on uh you know my second right now which I'm hoping will be out in February but um you know it's it's been an interesting process I think the one thing I never expected was uh I originally thought that uh the novel would sell better on uh Amazon Kindle um but as it turns out m- most my uh, orders have been for paperback uh, versions, and I find that pretty inter- interesting how, uh, you know, even novellas now are getting kind of a, a comeback in terms of, like, uh, actual physical media. I was really so.
0: surprised with that stat that I read the other day that said exactly the same thing, that, that paperbacks were starting to outsell after that big huge press of ebooks books Kindle, then, yeah. then now paperbacks paperbacks are making a comeback and and you know i don't know i'm not sure if it's uh you know the ability to read put it down carry it with you and not have a device um you know i like paperbacks you know because when i go out into the woods you know my truck breaks down i start a fire with a paperback
1: yeah yeah. well uh you know it i like the kindle uh personally like i have I've wanted the paper whites and it's nice to, uh, you know, be able to, uh, just, you know, read and have that and adjust the font size. So, I mean, as far as that goes, I, I definitely understand the appeal, but I, I am glad to see that like physical print media is kind of becoming, is kind of making a comeback because for a while there, it seemed like, uh, you know, Kindles were just going to take over the, uh, it's not so much the Kindles themselves that bug me. It's it's when you have read apps on their on your phone. I can't really stand those because your phone is just a big distraction. Uh, no, and it's it's kind of hard to read on those. From what I've yeah, my experience.
0: wife my wife will occasionally have a paperback card back, but she she reads e ebooks. But actually, she's a, she's an audio. Uh, yeah very heavily to audio and uh actually um my second book shadow sanction david temple from the thriller zone i've got him uh uh, he's starting work on the audio version of that and uh so uh i like oh very nice yeah yeah i like audio too and uh that is a growing space so
1: yeah it's uh i mean like i said i've been in the the podcast sphere for a long time. And it's, it's interesting because it's only been within the last like two years that um, audiobooks have kind of, I guess not really merged, but they, you know, they've grown in popularity in tandem with that space too. So, uh, you know, and as far as me, all I did was I went out onto Audible's uh, audiobook book platform and, uh, you know, hired a guy, but uh, it was still pretty, good experience so yeah. cool cool um well as far as uh the barrel ends, the thrills go like you said that's uh mainly focused on the you know drug war um aspects so yeah that um, came
0: that came directly from my military experience down in south america that and that incident where my yeah. mom was killed and and so um you know part of that Part of uh, writing a revenge book is, you know, me um, deciding it's smarter to write about invading Mexico than actually doing it, especially at my age. Um, but uh, I do think I can, collect, can go with me, but uh, it, would, yeah. it wouldn't end as well as it does for land. So um, that was the start. And then, you know, it's, it's um, maybe it's not the. the uh, you know, the the most interesting topic right now, but there's certainly a lot to write about because the second book, we go from Chasing El Chapo and, and the Sinaloa Cartel to, they're still involved, but now it's 2003, the first book's in 98, which was fun trying to remember, you know, all the gear we had and didn't
3: have in 98. Right.
0: But uh, in the second book, it's 2003, and now we've got the president telling uh, my protagonist, Lance Fairwood, you need to stop the Taliban and their opium trade, right? They're making four hundred million a year, which mm-hmm. is a rip from the headlines—an old headline, twenty-year-old headline, twenty-one years now. Um, but that was that was the case, and the military was in in Afghanistan saying that you know we're not here for drugs, we're here for counterterrorism, right? And uh, we're after, not after the Taliban for the drugs, but just for being the Taliban. And, you know, ISIS and AQ and other people like that. So um, it became uh, it became really easy to incorporate Afghanistan. And then somewhere out of the blue, uh, Marseille came up, right? Marseille was the center of attraction with the French connection. And of course, it's a great movie about that.
3: Oh, right. That was, right. Another,
0: that was another real life event, a uh, uh, mafia called Union Corsa. They tried to um, uh, get an army sergeant to bring a couple hundred kilos back to the state, you know, when he PCS. They tried to break into New York and connect with the mafia in New York or like that. So I was able to tie that together with the idea of um, uh, a government contractor who was uh, doing flights of material and people, you know, contractor flights of material and people carrying other things.
1: So, um, if, if I kind of made, if I may shift topics a little bit, not too much, but, um, do you think the drug war is still, uh, important? Or I guess like, uh, like why, why isn't the drug war talked about as much? now I guess is, is another, uh, question because it seems like, uh, I saw one of your posts on it on Instagram about, about China with the fentanyl thing, which is something that, you know, I've covered on this show as well um, a little bit, but it, it doesn't seem like uh, you know, the media is too interested in really covering the drug war anymore. Um,
0: no, occasionally they'll show you know, yeah. some, something brought into court, some big pile of drugs that the Coast Guard and the Navy have collected out of the Caribbean. You know, things like that, but it just it, it, it becomes so mainstream it was almost like how you know during the GY, it, it the coverage just sort of panned out right okay we, we've invaded we've done this and then it, it's sort of like the everyday work goes on and it's not really that interesting or that sensational right yeah but then then fentanyl shows up and it's toys right and uh, you know a previous, previous administration pushed the Chinese to You know, to to stop it and slow it down, that kind of thing. And and it did for a minute. It did for a minute, right? Yeah. And then it came right back up. And uh, uh, just recently here in Colorado, actually last year in Colorado, there was a case where, like, this whole extended family was into the selling of fentanyl and things like that. And they would all pile into the minivan, go down to Puerto Penasco, same place my parents were. Drop their minivan off. Go to the beach for a couple of days. The van would show back up. They drive back to Colorado. The van would disappear for a day or two. Come back, and they get a big wad of cash. And so, so the cartels were filling the the minivan with fentanyl, like in the dash and other places like that. And so, oh wow! Yeah. So that that becomes a little bit more sensational. But you know, even even a hundred thousand people. Uh, a year killed by fentanyl I think just doesn't rise to the level of the news media other than it's you know somebody makes some move and right does something in congress because you know 100,000 across 360 million people in the US it's not a it's not a significant I hate to put it that way but it's not a significant number enough to draw the attention um you know and Biden that that as you said, that blog I did was about biting meeting with g And he says, Yeah, yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah, sorry about the fact that I weaponized Sentinel against you. But yeah, sure. I'll yeah. Shut it off. Right.
3: Yeah. And, uh,
0: <laughs> you know, it, it it's labeled a pandemic, right? Well, a couple of years ago in w- w- West Virginia. And then we don't hear anything more about it, right? Because the Oxy, um, you know, the, the lawsuits against the big makers of, oxycodone and stuff like that were going on. So fentanyl disappears, oxy's, oxy's the news for a minute and then it disappears. And so, yeah. um, you know, that's another blog I've done. It's about the, we, we've we always just attacked the supply side. We tried, right, in the, even in the 80s with DARE and high schools and junior highs and things like that, you know, clean and whatever those things were. We tried working on the demand side uh, you know i i think there was some if you look back in the records you can see that they had some positive effects, but once again they didn't have long term lasting positive effects.
1: yeah well and i think some of the i think some of the language i think some of the languaging i mean certainly when i was in school i mean at that point i, I hate to say it but there was there was kind of a, kind of a joke and it it actually in in a weird type of way actually uh, i think kind of tempted uh kids and especially teenagers to kind of do the opposite uh you know and
0: and don't touch that whiskey in the liquor cabinet right, right.
1: <laughs> but yeah but you know but then they would also say stuff like well if you're you know if you smoke pot you know they would basically and they would basically describe as lsd and you know, clearly that, you know, the two aren't the same. Uh, With that being said, I don't know, because it's been probably 10 plus years since I've lived in Denver, so weed wasn't legalized when I was, when I moved to Florida. Um, They had passed it, but it hadn't gone into effect. And as far as I can tell, um, you know, weed legalization hasn't really done any favors for Colorado, it, it's kind of made things worse, just from what I've seen. Uh, but you know, you live, you live there now, and I don't. So, uh, you know,
0: no, I'd have to, I'd have to agree with you. It, uh, you know, it's a, it's another revenue stream. Uh, funny story: when they legalized pot, right after that, uh, I sat on an airplane next to the Denver City Controller, in. And I, I asked him, "How are these? How are these shops, you know, paying their taxes?" And he said, "They're paying it in cash, and my people are getting high counting it. <laughs> right? So yeah, all the, all the stuff on the on the money. And they were, he was actually going to create a contact there actually launder the money. But the the city, all the cities and stuff, had gone to credit cards and you know electronic payments. And you now now here come all these pot shops with all this gummed up cash <laughs> right. into the city. So Um, but I think, I don't know that the ratio between the shops and the need for extra policing, uh, you know, because not so much people are a menace per se. They, you know, like they're not getting amped up and becoming a menace. They're a menace because they're, they're on the street. They go to other drugs. They, they drive their car stoned and, and, you know, there's more accidents, things like that. So, And the funny thing is, is that the cartels are still involved because they're now, because of the price point pressure, they're now selling their uh, weed that they've grown illegally cheaper. Right. And so people are still drawn to cartel drugs, uh, even when there's legalization, at least with marijuana. Uh, Yeah. So um, it's interesting because here in the state, there was a lot of buildings and a lot of setups. Like I know one down in Salida, it looked like a military campus. It had, you know, concertina wire, razor wire at the top of the fence, and, you know, lights and everything. And and what it was, was you could tell it was a grow house because they had big transformers outside for the lights, right? Yeah. And, um, and uh, a lot of those closed, merged. Um, you know, I know people that. Likely they didn't put their life portion portion uh life uh savings into pot or something like that. But they put some money in and all those stocks, you know, bubbled up for a minute and then collapsed, you know. Yeah. Because it just didn't prove to be that big of a, a market.
1: Well the, the other thing I've I've read and correct me if I'm wrong, but uh I read a few years ago that um all that you know, one of the things that the weed it. Legalization was premised on, uh, from what I remember, was oh, it's going to be a revenue source so that we can fund public education. And then, yeah, that
0: smoke weed so we can tell them not to smoke weed. That
1: went, uh, you know, the the public schools got funded for a minute, but then the weed money went back right into the went right back into the industry, you know. And I was like. I, I told you that was going to happen. You you thought I was paranoid, but, uh, you well, know. It's, it's,
0: it's like, you know, like, it's like the states who, I remember when Florida went through the, we're going to start doing the lotto, you know, lottery and things like that. Yeah, and, yeah. Oh, the schools are going to get so much money and stuff like that. And The schools are still looking around in Florida to this day going, where did it all go, you know? Yeah. And uh, it just gets sucked up somehow into the state budget and used for other things, so. so. Yeah, but, uh, you know Broadway down on Broadway in in Denver still has a particular odor to it. You know when you're driving up Broadway and stuff. Yeah, like
3: yeah. That.
0: But uh, uh, other than that, you know, there's just shops here and there, and and you know they, there's one not too far from me, um, and uh, there's even one from uh, where my uh, daughter-in-law and grandson live. There's just one at the corner, and uh, you know they've got all kinds of you know they're trying to be funny names and stuff like that. But the real problem is the traffic right around the, my uh, daughter-in-law yeah. and step-grandson can't walk to the grocery store anymore because they've almost been run over a couple of times by people zooming into the pod shop and then yeah, pulling out, and just being generally crazy. You know. Yeah. And uh, anyway, so it's uh, uh, I have a friend who was uh, a CIO for a. Uh, company that grew pot and uh doing the it work he wasn't involved in the production side and stuff like that but he said it was he said it was pretty messy being inside the industry just not uh you know not well regulated and then of course people cutting corners right trying to trying to make profit things like that, so.
3: yeah
1: no it uh you know nothing is ever When politicians make a promise, you know, nothing is as it seems, uh, you know, ever, really. Right, Um, right. So, you know, and say what you will about, say what you will about Trump. I know that, uh, you know, not everybody likes him. He he was definitely right about the cartels, uh, you know, being a threat still, uh, you know, here in America. So.
0: Yeah, and the cartels make, right? They make a lot of money off of moving illegals across the border who carry product for them, right? Yeah. And, and, uh, yeah, so it, uh, you know, it's, um, the first book I write about human trafficking a little bit and tried the cartel, but it's become a big thing. And now, now we've got other worries with, uh, the folks that they send across that, you know, with the, uh, all kinds of folks from different parts of the world who may or may not be right very uh, pro America.
1: No, that that's one thing that uh, you know Andrews and Wilson, as we mentioned, that's that's one thing that they've written a bit a bit about. You know how um, ISIS and all these other uh, you know cartel groups are all these other terrorist groups. Excuse me, are now using you know the cartels to smuggle you know, tear cells into the U.S. and uh, you know, it may be fiction in their books, but it's happening you know, in reality and that's a problem that you know, no one seems to really want to publicly address so...
0: Right, when you look at the CBP reports of who they uh, apprehended you know, you've got people from Iran, from China from korea of one sort or another, yeah things like that and so um you know uh, they, they could be you know legit looking for um you know someplace safe and, and a better life and that kind of thing but um when we let them go free and it takes years for them to be adjudicated that's not a that's not a good uh not a good plan
1: yeah um given your background uh in the military this may be a a little bit, I don't know if this is in, in your wheelhouse, and if it's not, let me know, but um, I am curious as to what your opinion is on the whole uh, Israeli-Palestine uh, conflict. Do you think the U.S. should get involved, or, uh, you know, what's your general take on that whole uh, situation?
0: Well, I, we're certainly
2: our involvement right now is
0: tactical in nature, but at an advisory role uh, i would I would believe that there are tier one teams standing by to assist you know if they find some you know american um hostages things like that um, the uh
2: the unfortunate thing is from my perspective, the
0: Israelis looked at the calculus of uh, Doing, you know, limited strikes, and or sending in military to uh, go after Hamas, and uh, much like um, our military and, and a lot of other places in the in the free world, we value soldiers more than we do ordnance, right? Right. And, um, so their calculus came to the point where well, we're going we're going to have to. Um, you know, take out these facilities and things. And and so uh, regardless of whether that number that comes from the Palestinian Authority is right or not, there's certainly been civilian casualties. I think they've done, certainly, uh, they tried to, you know, use leaflets and other things to get people to move out of an area, right?
3: Yeah. And,
0: yeah, and we hear the stories about Hamas keeping them close. Using them as shields, things like that. So uh, they're put in a tough spot, but but Israel's not afraid. They've been they've been the pariah before, and they're not afraid to defend themselves. Yeah, and, uh, you know if uh, Hamas had sent, even if Hamas had sent a thousand rockets, you know across the border and Iron Dome and things like that it wouldn't have been considered nearly the kind of atrocities that their attack was right in Mm -hmm. So uh, I think coming up soon, Israel will switch more to uh, a, I hate to call it limited, because it's not like they're going to stop operations, but I do believe that they will change operations and there won't be so much uh, potential bombing that, that, in effect,
3: looks like carpet bombing, right? Right.
0: America's done the same thing in Vietnam. Arc light missions, you know, would take out miles, square miles of terrain. B 52s dropping tons of ordnance. In that case, though, we were taking a, we were we were bombing an agrarian country, right? You know, back into the Stone Age, and they were only two steps away from it. But now. You got Gaza, you've got people with internet, you know very very dense environment, things like that, so yeah, I understand why they're doing it uh, you know, you wish you could send in your 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 A teams, your tier one teams and they could be surgical and do what they need to do uh, but I don't think that calculus was really there i um and and the calculus right is also adjusted adapted, and whatever you might want to call it by the politics of the
1: situation it might right be- yeah right. So- yeah, there's that too yeah i i actually uh i talked to a friend of mine who actually lives uh in Israel probably about like it was back in october, and uh you know she said that one of the things that you know that the i d f has really had a tr- trouble with too is. Uh, you know they they try not to kill uh civilians and and gods because certainly there are a number of innocents over there. Um, but the problem is, is Hamas uh you know is so well blended in it's like trying to find a needle in a haystack uh over there. And so you know yeah they they try to minimize civilian casualties you know as much as possible, but it's it's hard when uh you know when they blend in so well
0: yeah i mean and a really good indication of that blending in whether it was accepted like in the hospitals accepted or not yeah was the fact that there were weapons and materials inside of you know uh uh, baby equipment right Premium equipment there were there was stuff that was hidden in the arm of the x-ray, you know, device. And things. just all kinds of, not just a stash in the corner, not a stash in the basement, but just everywhere throughout the facility, you know, they were finding stuff like that. And and so very, very thoughtful, very, very uh, insidious on Hamas's part to make it so, look, if you want to run this hospital, if you want to live here, if you want to live yourself, we're going to do this and you're just not, you're going to just not pay attention to it.
3: Yeah. Often,
0: be a doctor, things like that. And so uh, it's, it's tough. You know, it's, I mean, we had the same thing. And once again, World War II, uh, Vietnam, you know, who's the enemy, right? In, in, in the GY, you know, who is the enemy? Is it a sheep herder or does he have an AK? and he's not, you know, he's not my friend. Uh, and so it's, uh, unfortunately when you go urban,
1: did you actually serve in Vietnam or did you join up a little bit after?
0: Yeah. By the time I got through training and, and, uh, you know, they switched my MOS to, uh, you know, from being a radio operator in the Ranger Regiment, I got switched over to being this radio repair person who actually also operated and set up the radios. Um, there was no there was no going to Vietnam and it was yeah. it was closing down at
1: that point. So. One of, one of my neighbors uh here, he actually um he served uh he he was an army uh you know engineer uh electronics guy and he actually did serve uh in Vietnam a little bit more towards the end there. So it um I mean it's it's a shame that Nixon uh I actually tend to think that Nixon was actually a fairly decent president, and if it weren't for Watergate, we might have actually been able to succeed in um you know defeating the communists in Vietnam. but um you know, hindsight is 2020
0: yeah, I think um I mean special forces, rangers, seals, or a rescue, they all adapted to the real fight. Yeah. And right, you had all these officers that had been in World War 2, Korea, and they wanted to do, you know, a major army against major army kinds of battles. And uh, you know, I believe the saying is we never lost any one of the, we never lost one of those you know, army on army engagements. But uh the guerrilla warfare and you know, right we really didn't understand coin counterinsurgency at that point like we do now, like like uh uh Atreus and a couple of the other generals understood it. Right. And uh you know, as much as there was people in A, a teams or in, you know, uh SEAL teams doing hearts and minds kind of work, it was not a not something that really happened real large. Yeah. And Versus, even the people in Vietnam at some level saw the the leadership is corrupt and you know just sort of wanted to live their life right. I got my rights to these, you know. Yeah. Kids, just leave me alone, kind of idea.
1: Well, and I suppose too, kind. Of, and this kind of goes back to a little bit about what you write about. Um, I suppose the other thing is like with with the drug cartels, uh, you know, we're not. The military isn't really fighting an army, uh, you know, when it comes to that, but it's more of, you know, special forces essentially fighting organized crime, Um, you know, militarily, which is different than, you know, it's historically been. Uh, Yeah,
0: it's, as you you know, there, excuse me, as you know, the Zetas uh, at one point, uh, before they sort of uh, disbanded, they they were um, very militaristic and and more better armed than the military. Uh, the, between the Zetas and Sinaloa, helicopters have gone down, things like that. So uh-huh. they certainly have the hardware. In some cases, they have the training and the leadership. Um, and so um, I think that the unfortunately, the cartels have become such a big part of the GDP of Mexico. in and you know they're like. They're like like uh you know, like um like Neo, like uh, Mr. Smith talks to Neo, right? It's right. a virus, right? You know, they they become viral and their tentacles reach into so many different things that um what it would take to clear them out, stop them writ large is beyond uh, I think the pale of what a Mexican a government could do with their military and or the, the the people don't want to go there, right? Yeah. You know, I in in, uh, in a week from uh, when we record this, I'll be down in Puerto Vallarta. And um, I know it's relatively safe. I could do some stupid things, <laughs> you know, if I was so inclined. But it's right. relatively safe in that environment because there's sort of a, a truce. Don't mess up the. Don't mess up that that resort area, right? Because if people stop coming, it's going to hurt the cartel too. So there's, uh, you know, these uneasy truces all around uh, uh, Mexico, and I believe the government. What they do is they sort of like whack a mole. It's like, okay, you're getting out of line. You know, we send in the marines. We send in, you know, uh, mobile group you know, of army, things like that, or something like that. And uh, when they've done that and they haven't paid attention, they've got spanked pretty hard, right? Like when, when they went after El uh, Chapo's son and they had to, like, give him back. And Yeah. You know, that's, that's you know, and with the corrupt police force, it's, it's just hard to get anywhere, right?
1: Well, and, and they historically killed that one uh, DEA agent uh, back in the late 80s. They actually made a whole uh you know, Netflix series about that with narcos and they got you know, the cartels got spanked pretty hard for that, but then uh, you know, haven't really haven't really been touched that much since the I guess mid two thousands, like like that. So No, no.
0: It uh... Yeah, as I actually in my first book I write that the people who run the West Coast for uh, El Chapo? They got their position because they uh, actually helped uh, put El Pedrino in jail. So.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean the, I mean the whole history of you know the cartels in South America is you know pretty fascinating. You know, everyone thought that uh, you know. Uh, if they got rid of Pablo Escobar that, that would be the end of it and it clearly wasn't
0: exactly <clears throat> excuse me yeah the in Colombia i mean we went we get rid of Escobar and then the Medellin cartel blows up right yeah and then and then el chapo decides well i don't really need them i'll go buy them and go to the growers and create my own connections and things like that and uh, so, little Mister Enterprise, uh, El Chapo, <laughs> you know, he ch- he changed the landscape himself. Not to mention, yeah. Colombians were successful in getting after, you know, certain elements. Right, like you say, when they got out of control down in Cali with the Medellin cartel. Like
1: Is Colombians, to your knowledge, still uh, active in? I guess the cartels, or I mean, you don't really hear about. Columbia all that much these days as far as the the cartels are concerned i I can't imagine they went away they just maybe no
0: they're still big producer of cocaine right you know being along the Andean yeah. ridge right peru and, and other places so uh, it's it's still there um and it's i think the the leadership has learned how to be a little bit more uh low-key and you know not draw attention to themselves. Um, they did make a connection finally with, you know, the guerrillas, right? Who had been against them because the guerrillas were so communist. You can't have drugs, you know, and when you mm-hmm. have a good communist environment running in your country. So yeah, it's, it's shifted around, but uh, still, if not number one, certainly in the top three in cocaine production and, and uh, uh, people, just from all over different uh, countries make use of them directly now. Yeah.
1: Well, and I imagine, like, uh, I've heard that even a lot of the South American cartels are now getting into fentanyl, too, since it's, uh, you know, so cheap, at, at least from what, you know, I've heard. I'm not, you know, really into all of the, the drug stuff. But, uh, yeah,
0: the first, first place they went right was meth so easy to put to, you know, to mix and and put together. So everybody headed over to meth. And then now they've just continued along this synthetic, you know, uh, drug manufacturing, which is uh, uh, much like opium, you know, can start, you know, some guy with a kettle, you know, and a coal-fired stove, you know, just start start processing stuff. And uh, especially with fentanyl, you can get precursor stuff still flowing into, you know, even into Mexico and, and, and South America. So.
3: Yeah.
1: Um, so, uh, I guess going forward, as far as your books go, you said you're in the middle of, uh, you know, rewriting and, uh, you know, pub and hoping to self-publish. Um, so what is that, I guess, looking like? uh, right now, are you going to be re releasing books? I, I thought there are some books for sale, um, in print on your website, but I guess, where are you at with that right now? Yeah.
0: So, so with, uh, of Poseidon going out of business, uh, what I'm, what I'm working on is, uh, much like I said, following Eric's footsteps, I'm, uh, editing shadow tear, playing around with vellum and we'll put it back out as an ebook. Um, Under Pratt & Media is my publishing company, and um, get the first two books out there. Shadow Sanction, I need to make some changes, but the book doesn't really need another edit. It's in good shape. Um, You know, my first book was my first book. I'd like like another chance at it, right? So I got that. And like I said, uh, uh, an amazing editor here in Colorado, up in Nevada. You know where that's at is uh, right. got the got the third book. In the third book, Lance's obsession with O uh takes him to Cuba. hence uh the, the working title name uh Caribbean Harvest. Yeah, Interesting. Yeah. yeah, so um the uh yeah that that's a fun one because I actually switched also, I switched to first person. So the novella I've done, the origin story, that's with a different editor. Uh uh, the novella, the origin story about Lance Fairwolf himself, and then, uh, you know, book three are written first person. And uh, I'm a big fan of uh, Brad Taylor and uh, Learn to Lock. I've actually got a couple of his books I've deconstructed to, you know, learn how to yeah. You know, to this from Don. Bell. Yeah. Take a book, tear it apart, put it on the walls, circle highlighters, you know? sort of tear it up like a, an OCD Mel Gibson, you know, looking for a conspiracy. Right. Yeah. But in my case, I'm trying to learn how to write better. And, uh, I love first person cause it's more intimate. It, it was, uh, when I first started reading it, it was sort of shocking, you know, having been reading all these third person, you know, kind of books. And, uh, yeah. but I really like it now. And, uh, so that's, what's going on. I have, uh, um, like say that fourth book is done is, um, Takes Lance and a completely and the shadow tier team in a completely different direction um, uh, due to a threat to the United States, and um, then I'm working on the outline for the fifth book. So I'm staying busy and uh, uh, looking forward to publishing more of these books. Uh, Lance and the team will expand, but they Lance really fights to keep them out of the counterterrorism side of the world so they can focus on the drug war because that's his obsession.
1: Yeah. And and you mentioned that you're uh you know you're writing these books I guess kind of in the uh you know past um now you're you're starting in the you know in the you know in the 90s and then moving to, into the 2000s which is strange because I you know to me that still kind of seems contemporary life, but that time was uh, you know 20 years ago. Is that epic. So. Yeah. Yeah,
0: Yeah. uh, so I right now, until I get closer to the present, right now every book is about three years different. So I go ninety eight. Well, actually, it's five years, right? So ninety eight to two thousand three, but then I go to like two thousand six, two thousand nine is what I'm doing right now, just sort of creeping up. uh, You know, uh, not that the not that the um, time or the date really. Uh, it, right, it, it matters in some of the side story, right? Like, like in the two thousand, another really great writer, uh, Jeff Higgins, former DE agent who led the the drug war in Afghanistan. He spent a lot yep. of time there. Um, he wasn't on the scene yet in early two thousand three, but Shadow Tear knows about him. And yeah. So, uh, you know, so I I creep the books forward, uh, and I actually have a completely different series with a female protagonist that I'm querying that uh takes place in present day. So I have none of those worries about what pistol was there, what you know, what communications medium, what were we doing, you know? Yeah. How slow was the internet? Was it dialogue? <laughs> you know, stuff like that.
1: No, I uh I'm so I'm writing my uh you know books kind of in the present, but then I also have prequels uh that I'm writing that take place you know all the way back in the 80s and oh, i cool. you know i was born in in 95 but uh you know it's it's been pretty interesting researching you know what was what was the you know what was this like for the military back in the 80s there's a lot of stuff that's still classified from 40 years ago that you know i can't see you know just because i I'm, I'm a civilian so you know it's pretty it's pretty interesting but uh
0: Oh yeah, it, uh, it's funny. I can go, I can take a friend over to the NSA Cryptologic Museum and show them products that I worked with. Yeah, <laughs> I'm so old. My stuff is like like the first uh, Air Force One I flew on is in a Boeing museum. It's like I'm old. I'm getting old. Oh wow. Yeah, if you ever need help with the '80s, that was that was that was really '80s. You know, '80s to 2000 was my uh, really active time. So.
1: Yeah. Did you uh did you meet uh Reagan by chance um
0: yeah i i met president reagan um before i left the secret service i went down to houston and put in physical security uh systems and video and stuff in vice president bush's house i met him and barbara uh bush one so yeah, uh, yeah it uh fun time great people um uh, the Fords, great people you know things like that so yeah Rockefellers uh, you know it's, it's fun to chat for a minute with a you know a Rockefeller who you know could own South America things like that you know it's like wow,
1: Yeah this is, this is tripping me out <laughs> Well there there are some people in in my audience who you know would think that the Rockefellers are the uh you know are, are maybe like evil people or what I I don't I don't know there you know there are lots of There are lots of weird conspiracy theories that make great thrillers, but, uh, you know, I don't really... I try not to dive too much into the conspiracy theory world. Um,
0: Well, it is interesting when you look back and see how some of the generational wealth was built in the early days, right? Between the Kennedys and the Rockefellers and, and, you know, railroads and mining and gas and oil, things like that, and there was some pretty hardcore, maybe unscrupulous business things that went on back then that started building that generational wealth. But, uh, yeah. You know, the people the people I met and talked with were real people. Uh, you know, I'm, I met Dick Cheney when he was uh, chief of staff for Ford, right? Yeah. Things like that. And so um, they also, too, had a different perspective on the world and what was going on at the time. So.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. So... Well, uh, you know, I really appreciate you coming on, and uh, I will certainly probably be reaching out, you know, to you if you have the chance to look at a few of my, uh, you know, manuscripts. Uh, Eric, you know, recommended you pretty highly, and a few of the oh, other. thank you. Yeah, people have as say, well. if you
0: need, need help with uh, tech or something from the 80s to the 2000s? I can help you out. Uh, after that, I after that I was doing some other special things inside the. Uh, DoD and Intel community. So yeah, i I'd We be, can actually talk about uh, at some point.
1: Oh yeah, and I'd be happy to uh, you know give you give you a few uh, you know. it's if you if you need anything uh, as well. So that's what um, I love
0: about the writers community. We're always you know uh, looking to help each other, right? Because we all get stronger from it. So
1: yeah, that that's one of the things con that, is, that are, you know that's a little surprising about the community uh, the the podcasting community is is mostly very supportive but there are a few people who are uh antagonistic um you know as as well so but i haven't found any of that really in the in the writing community at all quite the opposite so
0: yeah it's a, it's amazing i mean i've walked up and talked to mark greeney brad taylor you know uh, yeah other huge huge you know brad thor i'm like do you mind do you mind if i come back in a minute and he's like no come on back and he signed he signed uh uh lions of lucerne which was in large part uh, looked like a retelling of ford being at vale right <laughs> when the president right, gets right. In <laughs> So like, i need to get this signed. yeah
1: the guy. yeah uh lions of lucerne and uh And uh, Transfer of Power, the, you know, the first Vince Flynn novel, I I read those, I read those, I took a gap year between, uh, you know, high school and college, and that was, that was 10 years ago now, and uh, that was when I kind of figured, well, if, you know, if these guys can, you know, write these, well then, shoot, I've had these outlines kind of in my head, so why don't I make, you know, an attempt, so. Awesome. uh, you know, it's, it's been quite a journey, but, uh,
0: absolutely. I can say that for sure.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, anything, uh, I mean, obviously you're still kind of, it seems like a work in progress, but is there anything I can, that you'd like to plug or, uh, promote kind of here at the,
0: yeah, I mean, folks can stay in touch, of course, by going to my website, Steve Stratton, dot com, Stratton, com, And, uh, get on the mailing list. Uh, I do book giveaways every month. Uh, I buy signed copies of books. uh, Some of the authors send them to me and then I give them away. And uh, so uh, we have giveaways of my books, uh, other author books, things like that. And I love to stay in touch with people, hear what they think about my books. Yeah. As I uh, get them back online and then hopefully... But you know, by the end of this year, I can have a novella and four books that I could probably do. You know, like a discount set, you know, a box set kind of idea, things like that. Yeah, yeah. So I'm looking. I'm looking forward to all those options and 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 just learning more as I continue to grow as a writer, learning more about publishing and, and self publishing in particular, because uh, people like you and and. Uh, John Stamp and, and Eric and a lot of other folks are, you know, ahead of me and I've got so much to learn and uh, sort of, you know, separate the wheat from the chaff kind of idea to get to the right thing.
1: Yeah, well, if it, if it makes you feel any better, I mean, I'm still, you know, learning too. I I, I first looked into, you know, self-publishing with Kindle like 10 years ago. I, I, I published a, a short story and uh, it went you know, it actually sold pretty well. Um, and then, as I mentioned, I, you know, I started college. Like, I had to put fiction writing on the, on the back burner. But then, kind of when I came back, you know, to writing this time last year and finished my, you know, first novella, everything with Kindle publishing, at least, had kind of changed. And you could, you know, you could print paperbacks now. And I think now, uh, Eric was telling you they now even have, like, a hardback option uh you know too which is wild so yeah you know, it's, yeah, it's... as
0: as as uh, good and as maddening as ingram spark can be yeah <laughs> you know that yeah that there's all these options it's just great that you know a lot of people talk about writing a book and we're a small percentage you know that have completed a book yeah uh, but that uh, you know that does I mean, you, you, I, I now know, you know, through KDP and stuff, you can create a cover, you can do everything right inside that environment, you know, your first time. So that that's great, and there's plenty of other people who will, uh, you know, you can learn from. And I'm a continuous learner. I love learning. Yeah, as am I. uh, Later this year, we're going to go to Italy, so I've got Babel now, and I'm learning italian and we're laughing my wife and i are laughing at each other trying to do italian and stuff like that so it's uh, just another medium of uh other place to learn and continue to grow keep my keep that plaque out of my brain so my I remember uh, what i what i was intending to do when i walk in the room
1: yeah so. my my folks actually just got back from a uh two month trip uh in italy and they had a they had a great nice. time so two uh, months wow and, and don't feel too bad about uh you know, not, uh, not knowing Italian because, uh, my mother, uh, bought, uh, all those like, you know, CDs to learn how to speak Italian. And I, I think she dug them out maybe like once or twice and then, uh, she was working, but then she retired and then they went to Italy. So, uh, they were able to get by. So it was pretty, uh, good. But
0: yeah, that's awesome.
1: Yeah, that I think uh from what I've heard you'll have a great time. But uh anyway, well thank you for uh coming on, sir. Street Steve Stratton USA dot com. That's your website. And uh you know, Steve is pretty active on uh Twitter too, so follow him there. And uh you know, thank you for coming on, sir, and I appreciate uh you know your time and I'll let you go get back to writing. So,
0: Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be here. Enjoyed uh, talking with you. And uh, for all those folks out there, you know, uh, that have the
1: dream, keep writing, never quit. Indeed. Thank you for your time, but And I'll see you uh, folks on Wednesday. So take care.
0: Thanks for listening to The Whitfield Report on the NGC Network. Please visit Sam's website at www.thesamwhitfield.com and support Sam on Patreon at patreon.com slash whitfieldreport. Until next time, God bless. God save this great nation. And God, freedom, legacy. In that order.